part of, uh, I've tried the last couple of years to sort of loosely string together a series of my chapel messages. I tried to uh, try to be in chapel about once a month, the way it works out, and sometimes that gets obliterated by changes in schedule, but tried to work through um, some themes or some, you know, some uh, ministry, pastoral type things. And, and, uh, I hope it's not like, uh, you're ready to just like forget all the issues of the last 18 months or so. But, uh, I decide based on a lot of interaction with what's going on in churches and, uh, in our culture and everything is, is the rough sort of rough unifying concept would be leading during conflict. And, and look what the scriptures say about that. How do we, how do we shepherd well when there's potential for conflict and, and issues happening, uh, outside and inside the church? And, and so what we'll do is just, Lord willing, look at different passages, uh, frames of reference for it. Uh, because one of the things that I think, I think we should all, I mean, we should all recognize, right? Until, uh, until uh, glorification, right? We're we're always going to have conflict in a world of sinners, us being one of them, or that would be actually, I guess, incorrect. Us being a part of the sinners, um, we 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 need to realize that. And uh, I think sometimes our expectation about it. Um, has an, uh, an enormous influence on how we respond, right? Whether, um, you know, whether we're a suspicious kind of person because of, of past experiences or, or whether or not uh, we've been, you know, we've been uh, beat up a little bit in past experiences. Um, you know, all that sort of factors into it. We come into relationships uh, and circumstances, and and we need to at least be uh, self-aware enough to realize that sometimes uh, sometimes we uh, maybe bring the fight with us, or we turn something that wouldn't have been a fight into a fight. Right? That that's possible. We also do have to recognize that we're in a sin-cursed world, and so. So we need to be ready to navigate it in a way that, that honors the Lord and produces, by His grace, health in the church, right? Because, um, I mean, in ministry management, we talk a little bit about a, a phrase that uh, I picked up years ago. I can't remember from whom right now, but uh, conflict is a mismanaged problem. And, and I think there's some truth to that, right? I mean, uh, those of us who are married know that sometimes very small problems and discussions turn into very large debates and arguments because we mismanaged how to solve that little problem, right? And all of a sudden it becomes about all kinds of things. And, and so, you know, so it goes from a, a regional skirmish to a, you know, a, a local skirmish to a regional conflict to a global war because we just keep letting everything fall out into it. And, and we need to, you know, we need to understand that. So I'm, I'm coming at it from the standpoint of uh, don't, I mean, don't think I'm coming at it from, so here's how to beat your enemies, <laughs> right? It's how do we shepherd well? How do we, how do, we do that? 
And, and I really think the first point is, uh, it's in a number of passages of Scripture, but I think, I think 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 1 through 5, give us, I think, one of the most important issues in it uh, that has to do with our focus. Uh, so I'm going to read the passage, and I'm going I'm to give a like a really quick. I guess uh, I want to. I want to. Oh, I should never use those words. All right. So I'm going to do a overview of what I think is the the main point of it and how Paul develops that, and then uh, try to dig in a little on on what that how that relates to this issue. Okay. Let a man regard us, begin verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord." Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, bring, uh, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So uh, I'm, I'm assume a certain familiarity, but I'll just give you the crash course on it. There's conflict at Corinth. They seem to be dividing up into groups. Early in the book, we see I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of the Lord. But as, as the book goes forward, it starts to become clear that it seems chiefly to be I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. Because in chapter 3, that's where he starts to zero in his attention. If you look at verse Five, for instance, he says, What then is Apollos and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed as the Lord gave opportunity? And if you look at 4 6, he says, Now these things, brethren, I figure, figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So, so that seems to be where the chief confrontation is. And in all probability, I think what's happening is that people have chosen a representative not at the representative's desire, right? There's really no conflict between Paul and Apollos, but, but you've got uh, theological and ministerial uh, components happening or, or, or sides being taken, and they're claiming the one for themselves, right? So Apollos is much more eloquent, much more sophisticated, it seems, in his presentation. And that's what some at Corinth wanted. They didn't want the offense of the cross. They, they wanted the wisdom that would be more attractive. And so they are illegitimately claiming Apollos. We want a ministry like Apollos. And, and Paul's, Paul's uh, pushing back on that, showing the fleshliness of their thinking uh, all the way through. And, and, and in reality, it's the opponents of Paul that are trying to discredit Paul in some way. And, and that comes, I think, full bloom by 2 Corinthians, where Paul's having to uh, genuinely defend himself in, in significant ways against the accusations. But it, it, wasn't, uh, it was not unique to Corinth, right? It seems that even a letter like 1 Thessalonians, which is not combative at all, Paul has to defend somewhat his motivation in chapter 2 
and talk about how he handled himself with integrity and and sincerity. Uh, and I and I think that's uh, so. What what I think it can help us see is often conflict. The the opponents in conflict try to go to the motives. Right, they try to discredit you because then they can discredit the thing that you're advocating. Right? They, they begin to attack the person. And so Paul is now addressing that in chapter 4 about how they think about him and, and what they're doing. And, and he lays out essentially, I think, a, a, profound, a profound kind of case and argument. I'll give you the sort of the heavy way to say it, right? Human, reval- human evaluation, evaluations regarding ministry should be stopped because they're premature and limited. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can and will make a thorough examination of each servant's ministry. Right? That's, 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 look at the beginning of the chapter. Here's how you really should think about us. We're the servants of Christ, right? And, and, and that's, what you need to understand in chapter 4. And then he comes down to where he's really driving in the first part of the chapter with the command in verse 5, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. So what Paul's saying here is challenging their tendency, at least some of them, to be judging the motives of Christ's servants. And tells them, stop, you know, don't do that. There's coming an appointed time in which that evaluation will take place. It says there, uh, until the Lord comes. So when the Lord comes, that judgment will take place. And that judgment will be perfectly accurate because he will bring to light things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man will, uh, man's praise will come to him from God. So where he pushes in the argument of these first five verses is to stop doing this, right? Because they're not your servant, they're servants of Christ, and you, you uh, need to trust that the Lord will take care of it at the right time and in the right way, All right? So, so that's what he's pushing toward. And, and he sets it up in one and two by the fact that they actually, the nature of their ministry is that they are the Lord's servants and their responsibility is as stewards. Um, and the standard for that ministry, verse two, is faithfulness or trustworthiness. They have been entrusted with the mysteries of God, right? the revelation of God's truth. They've been entrusted with it. And the standard is going to be whether they've been trustworthy with the responsibility they've been given. That's, that's, that's God's standard for it, and, and that's the basis on which he will evaluate them because they are his servants. All right, let me just stop for a second and, and uh, uh, try to wrestle with the, the tension that we find in Scripture about judging. Okay, uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says we're actually supposed to judge uh, a tree by its fruits. Right and to beware of false prophets. So we actually are supposed to do some kind of judgment of those who claim to be uh, servants of Christ. Because if you look at the rest of that passage, it says, you know, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Okay, so, so we can't use this text to say we would never assess a ministry or a minister. All right, we, we have to recognize that Jesus, in fact, instructs us to. And the very next chapter, chapter 5, Paul says that the church was supposed to exercise judgment on so-called brothers who are walking in disobedience to the word of God. Right? And look at the end of chapter 5. Um, he, he, he talks about not judging, 12, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? <laughs> but those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And in fact, he even goes so far as in chapter 6 to talk about they should appoint people to adjudicate conflicts among believers. Right. Notice in verse 4 of 6, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in this world? It is, your, it is to your shame. So, so this is, um, I mean, this is always our task as faithful expositors, is that we don't handle a passage without regard to what the rest of Scripture says. We always have to be working to correlate and harmonize. And I think the answer is in the language that's used in verse 5 of chapter 4, right? Disclose the motives of men's heart, right? That, that, that we do have a certain responsibility to assess uh, what I would say is the biblical fidelity of anyone who claims to speak for God. Right, because there's a standard, and it's the Word of God, and and you can pass judgment on that is actually not true to the Word. That's the only way you could obey something like Romans 16. That those who teach things contrary to what you've received identify and avoid them. I mean, if you can't ever pass judgment on the teaching, you'd have a problem. In fact, First Thessalonians 5 seems to indicate that that's supposed to be a regular part of it. We're to examine. And, and to abstain from anything that's evil and hold fast to that which is good, right? That's, that's necessary judgment. And I would, the way I understand Matthew 7, uh, the activity of the person is subject, just like 1 Corinthians 5 says, to some level of assessment, because I think that's the issue in Matthew 7, without trying to preach multiple passages at the same time, but the, the issue there on fruit is not ministerial success or not. Right, because the the people Jesus dismisses said, "Did we not cast out demons and perform miracles?" He says, "Depart from me, what worker of iniquity, or you lawless ones." Right, and then the very next section of Matthew seven is the one who hears my word and does it. Right, So the thing you're assessing is, are they being obedient to the word? I mean, we have ample illustrations of people who seem to have had uh, phenomenal ministry success, all the while we might wonder if they even know the Lord. Because what, what we see behind the curtain when the curtain gets lifted. right? And, and, and that's going to be the, the scene in Matthew 7, I think. When, when Jesus lifts the curtain and says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Right? So, so I think the, 
the doctrine, the content, the uh, behavior and life, we have to do some level. So that's why in 1 Timothy 5, if an elder goes on sinning, he's to be rebuked before all. That, that involves some level of judgment, right? So this text is not saying, so, hey, just kumbaya, you know, wrap your rounds around anyone that names the name of Christ or says they're on Jesus' side, you're all good. What it's going against is the kind of uh, overreach when a human begins to think that they can assess the interior motives of everybody, right? That you're doing what you do for sinful motives, therefore we can dismiss you. That, that that's where the problem, I think, lies. And, and why is that a problem? Well, look at verses 3 and 4, because this is... Uh, I think really sort of the crucial part of what he's getting at, right? But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. And in fact, I do not even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So the first thing Paul does in verse 3 is emphasize the insignificance of human examination, right? It is a very small thing. Uh, he he uh, is bold enough to say to the Corinthians, it really doesn't matter that you're examining me, right? And he even broadens it out past that to say, or by any human court. That is, the assessment of man's judgment isn't what matters to me. Okay, it's a small matter. And even his own. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Now, again, I think we have to understand that Paul's dealing with here, I think, the issue of motive. And Paul is saying that's not uh, those three realms. You any human court, even myself, is not, not the final arbiter of it, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't solve it, right? And, and I would think, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about this, I think Paul would, uh, would be saying here, not that he doesn't, I mean, he's not, again, abandoning any kind of reflection on his obedience to Christ. He says in Ephesians 5.10, always trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, he makes it his ambition to do what is pleasing to the Lord. So that means he has to make decisions about it. And if I went this direction, that wouldn't be pleasing to the Lord. This direction, I believe, is pleasing to the Lord. And certainly Paul would acknowledge that if in times he made decisions that were wrong and was convicted or convinced of that, then he would confess that to the Lord. Right? He, he is not trying to minimize that. I think what he's doing is, is um, practically embracing what Jeremiah talks about. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I mean, I, I would like to be able to affirm with 100% accuracy that every interior desire of my heart I understand completely but I don't have the bandwidth for that, right? Only the Lord can know the heart with that kind of accuracy. We, we can't do that. And so I think what Paul's 
uh, trying to get at here is I'm not the final judge even of my own heart. Right? I, I, I can't do that. That's why then he comes to the next statement in verse 4 when he says, uh, not only is it insignificant, it's inconclusive, right? Self-examination is inconclusive. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, right? I think that conscious of nothing against himself is another way of saying my conscience is clear. And it's probably just sort of like the quick corrective, Right, because think about it, I mean, think about it in terms of of uh, reader response, not as a hermeneutic. But Paul says it's a small thing that I'm judged of you or of any human court. I don't even examine myself. Immediately, potentially in the mind of his opponents, are go, "Well, you ought to." Right, you're not examining yourself because you're guilty. So Paul goes, "Not that I'm aware of that I'm doing anything wrong." Right, I have no conscience problem about what I'm doing, right? So I'm not covering anything. I'm not ignoring anything. I'm just telling you my judgment doesn't matter, even though my judgment right now says I'm not doing anything wrong. Notice he says, I am not by this acquitted. That is, that doesn't free me. I am not off the hook. That he's unaware of a failure. Uh, Let me put it positively that he is aware of no failure on his part actually means nothing. Right? Because that's not that's not the final answer. And 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 I think that well, I'm gonna, I'm going to lay it out then I'll come back to some of these, all right? But I, I think that's really important especially in our culture which has uh I think as we have relativized biblical authority um and made individuals the standard Right? People think if their conscience doesn't bother them, then they must be right. But that's not actually true. Because your conscience can be misformed, misinformed and potentially malformed. Right? You could be a psychopath and have no conscience operating effectively. Just because your conscience doesn't bother you doesn't mean you're in the right. Now, not having your conscience bother you is a good thing as a general principle because you shouldn't go against conscience. But the standard isn't your conscience. It's actually the Word of God. Right? So uh, someone, you know, let's, let's tease it out in terms of conflict. Somebody who grow, grew up in a home that was a constant battle of verbal, uh, you know, verbal conflict and interaction, right? They, they, they speak harshly to each other and seem to be unfazed by it. They get married, and he begins to talk to his wife like that, and it just absolutely devastates her. And she goes, your, 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 your words are harsh and sinning. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. My, I'm not, my conscience doesn't bother me. Because his conscience has been twisted by an, a, an environment that is toxic. So he doesn't even recognize that he is having corrupt communication come out of his mouth, which is not good for the use of edification that might minister according to the need of the moment. 
He just thinks the problem's on the listener. My conscience doesn't bug me. Right? Or, or take, it, uh, take it out of a marriage thing into a church context. And, and someone who pastored in an authoritarian kind of a scenario, right? That, that they're used to, you know, I'm God's man and you just do what God's man says. And they get into a church and start to have conflict. And so they're, they're inclined to think the problem's over there because they're not doing what I said. I'm the man of God. And someone says, but you're using your authority in a, in a, uh, in a very high-handed way. And all they've seen is that. And they're going, no, oh, you're wrong. My, con- my conscience is clean. Right, which might be a good thing, but doesn't mean they're right. Or, you know, the the church member who who has seen things happen in churches and and they you know they watched how sometimes the games can be played to manipulate and and they think that's what church life is like. This is the way things are done. And they get confronted about their underhanded operations and they go hey, uh, my conscience is clear about this. It's like, well, that's nice, but that doesn't mean you're right. Okay, that's, that's Paul's point. I don't know anything against myself, but that doesn't acquit me, right? Because conscience isn't the ultimate. It is very, very important. Don't hear me saying it doesn't matter, but it is not ultimate. The Lord's assessment is, and the Lord has told us how he will assess us. So, so we need to, you know, you can do the wrong thing with the right motive. And, and, and that's counter um, the kind of sloppy sentimental ethics of our day, which makes motive the most important thing. And, and, um, I think the failure there is precisely the Jeremiah passage, right? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So you can be convinced that you are completely altruistic while you're in fact operating selfishly, right? You need a standard that's better than your depro- your your sinful uh, sinful conscience or sinful activity in that regard, right? Because it comes down to the last part of verse 4, but the one who judges me or examines me is the Lord. So what is all the, I mean, I've, I've made some like references to conflict in it, but, but here's the thing what I would say is, the, here's the main point I want you to get about the leader in conflict. You need to die to the evaluations of other people. Right at the end of the day, uh, when conflict starts to emerge, it will it will almost inevitably result in some levels of uh, either unintentional or intentional calling into question the core of your life. Right, people in our day particularly but obviously not just in our day, because here it is in the text of Scripture, are inclined to think the people that disagree with them are, are evilly motivated. Right? Because, 
because if they weren't, they would see that I'm right. I mean, and that's become enormous, is basically, instead of actually um, wrestling with the issues and the factors that are at stake, people begin uh, to attack uh, individuals call into question their godliness or their sincerity, and and that's when things get ugly fast, right? Because nobody likes to be accused of I- evil motives. Nobody likes to be accused of of uh, manipulating circumstances, especially if you're doing everything you can to try to serve. Right? You're trying to do something that you believe is the right thing and in the best interest of other people. And what's happening is they're going after you at a level that calls into question whether or not you actually love Jesus and, and want to help people. You're just an evil manipulator of circumstances, right? And, 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 in, and if you haven't died to that assessment, and said, the only one that matters is the Lord's, right? Because that's how Paul responds to this. It's, it's really a small thing that I'm judged of you, or of any human court. In fact, my own self-examination isn't final. It's the Lord's. Because, regardless in this way, we are servants of Christ. And what he calls us to is to be faithful, right? And, and I think that... that um, this should be true of us at all times, right? I mean, if you're, if you're going into ministry for the approval of people, you are wrongly motivated and probably going to be sorely disappointed, right? Because if that's your motivation, uh, the thing that will, will be the death of a thousand cuts is even if you are mainly loved, you will not be universally loved. It's just not going to happen in in this world, right? The very thing that many people will be thrilled with you about, some will be really unhappy with you about. And you just need to you just need to die to that, right? You're not you're not in that sense the servant of of those detractors. You are the servant of Christ, and you need to recognize that there's coming a day, verse 5, when the Lord will examine the heart and your praise will come from him. That's what I love about the positive statement at the end of it, right? And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Because, you know, sometimes we think about the judgment seat and then you're going to get it. Right? It's like, okay, we're all going to answer God. i got to be careful. I'm not going to get messed up up there. And it's like, then, then every man will have his commendation from God, right? Because if you're the Lord's servant and you're seeking to do what he wants done and in the strength that he supplies, he graciously will have his commendation for you. And it will be worth it at that point, right? If, if you don't get any of it up until that point, um, I'll be honest with you, if everybody's against you, you might want to look in the mirror. Right, because the, God does have His people, and and generally you're not going to have everybody against you. 
because there will be people, if you're doing the right thing, who will respond to the word. You need to have a positive perspective of that. Um, but, you know, you may find yourself in a place where uh, the devil has gained advantage and, and you're going to get beat up. <laughs> but there'll come a day when, when Christ will not beat you up. He will commend you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So, so that's got to be the bedrock to it. And, and I, hopefully I'm not saying this in an unkind way, but the fear of man, to use the word of Proverbs, right, is a snare. And that's a snare that all of us have to avoid. And sometimes um, it seems as if that that inability to die to the approval of people causes gasoline to go on the fire, right? Because it, it, it can actually sometimes be, seem like a good motivation. Boy, I, I know they must be understanding, misunderstanding. If I could just get them to see that I'm really, really motivated the right way and that I really want, I mean, if I could just convince them and in the middle of a conflict, it actually, that generally tends to backfire. Because if you're already in a conflict stage, they're not listening to you in neutrality. And you're starting to make the fight about you instead of about, here's what God says. Okay, this really isn't about me. It's, it's not... I'm, I'm just, go back to chapter 3, I'm just the Lord's servant. It's, it's actually God's field. It's God's building. Right? This isn't about me. I, it really doesn't matter what you think about me. The issue is, what does God say about this, and how do we do what God said? Right? The worst thing you can do is make it about you. Because that's going to just cause more problems. It needs to be about the truth. It needs to be about God's right to rule over his house, his temple. And so don't, don't, um, don't underestimate the potential for you to become defensive and therefore start to react in ways that don't actually achieve a God-honoring outcome. Right? It, it really has to be that, that we're just servants, right? We're, we're servants, and, and we can trust the master so we don't have to get in the mud and fight about it. We can actually try and point people to a higher ground where we can actually talk about what the truth is and what ramifications that is for what we're doing, all right? So the heart of it, I think, has to be a focus on our appointment and assessment by the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word to guide and direct our steps, and thank you for the fact that often the word um, gives us examples of, of the kinds of things that we might face so that we can learn from how you want us to deal with them. And I pray that you'd help us to grow in our confidence in you and in your righteous assessment of us, that we would be content to leave it in your hands and, and 
and therefore always be valiant for your truth and for your reputation and glory, but be content to, to leave our own at times uh, aside for the greater good of what you're doing. Pray you give us a great semester and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.